All right. So, church, it is my pleasure to introduce you today, Brad. Brad comes from uh, Mount Pleasant. He lives there with his wife, Katie, and their two kids. Uh, the bio in the email said one kid, but there's actually two kids. There's a picture with a baby, and we're just like, is that your baby? Is that not your baby? Anyways, that is, that is his baby. It is confirmed. Um, so he pastors at the Garden Church in Mount Pleasant. Uh, he has a biblical studies undergrad degree at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where he and his wife met, and a master's degree in Christian studies at Regent College. So he is my fellow brother in arms there. Um, we probably maybe crossed paths once or something. But anyways, would you help me warmly welcome Brad Brunesky. Thank you. Is it okay if I put this down here? Too many mics for my hands. Good morning, Pilgrim Church. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. Also, I love that. You know a church is spiritually engaged when there are whoops and hollers for a night of lament. (laughs) Not the reaction I expected, but I loved it. Uh, yeah, like like Josh said, I'm uh, my name is Brad. I I'm pastoring a church in Mount Pleasant. Uh, it's formerly called Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, a church of over 130 years of ministry history, and we're in this process and project of of a replant. And it's been quite a journey. We're really excited about it. We are moving towards full launch of the project at, at Easter and going forward from there. Just really excited about what God's doing in our church. And so, yeah, it's great to be here. I know lots is happening here as well. And so encouraging to hear all of that stuff. Before I get into it, uh, just let me read our text for today, and then we will dig in together. Our text today is in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to that. Uh, I'll be reading from verse 10 to verse 13. Paul writes this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Let me just pray. Uh, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning as we gather. We acknowledge that these words that we read from which I teach, Lord, are not just words on a page. We believe that these words are living and active. That you breathe these words, Lord, and you continue to bring them alive in our midst. So we just pray, come Holy Spirit. May you do a mighty work of transformation, of stirring in our hearts, Lord. Point us to where we need to be convicted, humbled, encouraged, comforted, Lord. Do that work today. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So in preparation for church planting and whatnot, I did a, I did a residency at the Way Church in Vancouver. And then I've been leading Mount Pleasant all that together for about two years now. But before that, I was a pastor for over seven years at a church in Coquitlam, and a church I grew up at, and it was called Blue Mountain Church. And I had the privilege while I was there of leading this beautiful community of young adults. And while we were wrapping up our time there as we were moving on to what God had for us next, our young adult community put on this night 
that we didn't know it was going to wrap up this way. But they put on this night. At the end, they called me up on the stage, and they presented me with this wrapped present. And I was supposed to open this present in front of everyone. Now, a little bit about me. I love, I love coffee, which I feel like is a redundant statement in Vancouver. Like, don't we all? But I love to make, like, really good pour-over coffee at home. And for years, I mean years, I had been eyeing this electric kettle for pour-over coffee by a company called Fellow. You can see the pictures up on the screen. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about with this kettle. It's specifically designed for making pour-over coffee. It's amazing. Just a thing of absolute beauty. Like, just a beautiful work of art. I also say that acknowledging it's just a kettle. It heats water. And... It is objectively ridiculously expensive for a kettle that heats up water. So I had eyed this thing for like six or seven years without ever pulling the trigger because I couldn't justify it. But apparently I had mentioned it. And I'm standing in front of this whole group of our young adult community that night who had pooled together to get me this gift out of incredible generosity. And I opened this beautiful, long-desired fellow electric kettle that night is beautiful matte black, just a work of art. And I'm overwhelmed in that moment by the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the sacrifice to pull together and get this. But I'm also opening this present in front of a group of people with like a lot of expectations for a reaction. And in those moments, I, I'll be honest, I have yet to really learn. What do you say in moments like that? Like, how do you repay generosity like that, especially in a public setting? How do you repay generosity like that? Or maybe, maybe more seriously for us, think of a time in your life when you were in a bind and someone crucially came through for you. How do you repay generosity like that? Well, I think for starters, simply by saying what? Thank you. I'm glad we know that. Thank you. <laughs> And really, what in the world is there to say in those moments other than thank you, right? And I think as a little sidebar, it's so much of what our worship to God is in the church. It's this overflow of all that we can say in response to his gracious gift to us. It's just thank you. But this is also a little bit of what's going on here as Paul concludes his letter to the church in Philippi, this letter we call Philippians. For a little context, Paul's writing this letter And he's imprisoned. He's likely in Rome. And he's an enemy of the state for preaching the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And for preaching this gospel, he's a traitor to the empire. And and, and in the context of Paul's time, first century context, when you're imprisoned like he was, you're on your own entirely for food and drink and whatever provisions that you need. You're really on your own. Like, think about that. You are completely dependent upon family and friends to come through for you. And Paul, even even further on this, Paul's been an itinerant preacher. So he's been traveling around the known world. And he finds himself at the heart of the empire, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, which was his hometown. So he is all alone, in need of every provision while imprisoned. Talk about desperation a desperate predicament and then one day out of nowhere Paul's door opens and in walks this guy named Epaphroditus 
And Epaphroditus has, a, has arrived from Philippi, which seems to be well over 800 miles away, which is not just like a two-hour flight in the context of that day. But Epaphroditus has come from, from Philippi, from this church that Paul had planted years before. And he shows up, and he's got food. He's got water. He's got money, clothing, all the provisions that Paul needs. He's literally saved from death by these gifts from Philippi. And so Paul's left in that follow-up moment where you're just like, what do I say? How do I repay this kind of generosity? Like, I don't think a little keychain from the Colosseum gift shop's going to quite do the trick. Like, how do I repay this kind of generosity? So when Paul writes this little letter to the Philippian church, one of the main motivations for writing is purely for him to say, thank you. And he really gets into it in verse 10. Verse 10 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Now the word rejoice can be translated as a celebration. He's saying, I've had this great celebration in the Lord. Now remind me again, where is Paul? He's a prisoner far from home. He's a prisoner far from home, but he writes, I've had this great celebration in the Lord. I've rejoiced because at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, we don't know exactly what he means by that part specifically, why they had no opportunity. It might be because they were 800 miles away and Paul was essentially off the grid. It might have been because the Philippians were relatively poor, so there was some time required to accrue the resources to help Paul in his time of need. We're not totally sure, but in essence, Paul is saying, look, you had no opportunity to show it, but you were concerned about me. And that has become so abundantly clear. So thank you. Thank you, Epaphroditus. Thank you, church. Your gifts, your money, your food saved my life. You were the family that I needed to depend on for my life, and you came through. So thank you. But then look as he continues. This is where it gets really interesting. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Wait, what, Paul? <laughs> like, what do you mean you're not saying this because you're in need? We've been over this. Of course you're in need. You are imprisoned. You're about as in need as anyone I know. And he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances Look at verse 12. He says, for I know what it is to be in need, down and out, in poverty, health failing, all alone. Yep, I know what that's like. Frankly, probably better than most of you. Read the book of Acts. It's right there. Then he says, and I know what it is to have plenty, to have more than enough, food to spare, money to spare, roof over my head, a job, friends, family, to be part of a, a lively, passionate church living in harmony and in unity. Yeah, I know what that's like. I know both. And this is where Paul starts to sound a little bit like a wellness blogger that you might read today on like a WordPress site. Like, you know, like three steps to a more peaceful life, you know, and you're clicking that link. Five life hacks that will transform the way you live. You know, I changed this one habit and now I'm aging in reverse. You know, those kind of like clickbait headlines that we'll click and we'll go to. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. If that's not a baiting headline, I don't know what is. I'm clicking that link. I've learned the secret of being content. The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. You know, just subscribe to my mailing list, right? <laughs> but in all seriousness, anyone in the room feel like they could use that secret? I know I do. I'll be honest, in, in preparation for preaching this sermon, I'm struck by my own lack of authority to preach this kind of message. So I'm preaching to myself first and foremost today because I feel very far from being able to say confidently, I've found the secret of contentment. I'm 100% content. I don't want more money. I don't want a better job. I don't want more stuff. I don't want more square footage. I don't want to be able to own a home someday in this crazy city. No, not me. I'm 100% content. I feel pretty far from being able to say that. Because contentment is such an elusive thing, right? And what blows my mind about this passage is that nothing about Paul's circumstances say that he should be content. Even by our present day metrics, if we place those on top of it, same thing. He's not rich, he's in poverty. He's not famous, if anything, he's infamous. He's wanted by the government. He's not married, he's single. In fact, most scholars speculate that he was a widower. He's not in good health, his body's failing. He's been stoned too many times, not our modern translation. But think about the, f- the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about. Nothing about his circumstances say that he should be content. Here's a guy in prison, dirt poor, bad health, future looking bleak, and he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I have a lot to learn from the person who can say that with confidence and put it in writing. So let's try to do that briefly this morning. Let's try to learn a couple lessons from Paul. Here's a couple thoughts on contentment from the text from Paul. The first one. The first lesson is that contentment is something you learn. Contentment is something you learn. Verses 11 and 12. Look at this. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. See, contentment's not natural. It's not the default setting for human beings. Think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis. They had their pick of any tree in the garden. The whole world was open to them. It was a beautiful place of the nearness of God. They had all these options and yeses. There was just one thing they couldn't have, one thing out of their reach. And sure enough, what happens? They must have it. In a world full of yeses and divine gifts and beauty, there will always be something that's just out of reach. Sure, life's okay now, pretty good, but you know, when I get married then, or, or when I graduate from school, or, or when I get that job stability I've been working really hard for, or when I finally get to retirement then, and there will always be something just out of reach. That's the way desire works. There will always be something out of our reach, and that's a promise. And it's not just that, of course, there's more. I remember my daughter, Wesley, when she was... When she was one, I remember a day when, when her and I went to this park. And she loved swings. She loved baby swings. And we went to this one park in Mount Pleasant. And this park had four baby swings all next to each other, which is very rare. This is, usually there's one or two. There were four baby swings. It's an amazing park. And I remember my daughter comes up, and I, and I made this parental mistake that I've learned not to make. I made this parental mistake of, like, allowing my daughter to pick and choose which swing she wanted to go on now they're all identical they're the exact same but we stood there for a solid five minutes while my daughter hummed and hawed on which swing she wanted to go on swing number one number three kind of assessing her options finally after like five minutes she settles on swing number three great okay 
So I put her in swing number three. We're, we're having a great time. She is happy, big smile. We're swinging. Life is good. Until this moment comes where this other kid comes to the park. This other kid and his mom. And they come over and that kid plops down in swing number four. And I kid you not, the second that kid sat down in swing number four, everything changed for my daughter. She looked over and the look on her face instantly transformed. And you could see it was written all over her face. It was, well, now I want swing number four. And I could see it. I'm like, no, don't do this. You had your choice. You picked swing number three. We're, life is good. We're having a great time. Don't do this. But I can see on her face, no, I, I want that one. To the point where I remember she actually starts to like reach over at the kid on swing four. It's like, no, 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 you can't. You can't do that. And I remember this moment. I'm like, what is, what is wrong with your swing? Like you aren't, they're identical. They're the exact same. Frankly, you had your choice and you picked this one. So what is so hard about your situation? But notice even, the moral of the story is, notice even the role that comparison plays in discontentment, even for my then one-year-old daughter. There will always be that other kid in your life. There will always be someone older than you, or younger than you, or better looking than you, or has what you now want, or cooler, or smarter, or more hip, or more educated, or more successful. You will never be the best I'm just here to encourage this morning. (laughs) But there will always be someone ahead of you, someone better than you, by whatever metric you choose to measure. And you'll never be content until you put to death comparison. Because there will always be somebody or something that is just out of your reach. It's the nature of human desire. And this is why Paul says you have to learn to be content. It's something you have to learn. Paul says it's something he's learned. But the thing about learning is that learning's hard work. There's students in the room, I'm sure, and you can affirm that. The time, the energy, the willpower, the time management, it's hard work to learn. And you usually learn from the most difficult things in life. It's hard work to learn. And Paul says, I worked at it, but with time I learned the secret to being content. But the beauty of that for us, in a positive view of that, the beauty of it for us is that he's not saying that contentment was just some epiphany that he got and he received, and hopefully you get it too. Now, the beauty of it for us is that if Paul can learn it, we can learn it. You have the same spirit in you as Paul. If Paul can learn, I can learn. I have the exact same spirit in me as Paul, and so can you. And your life is a laboratory, and you are a student. And every day at that job you want to quit, or at that school that you're tired of, or in that marriage that frankly isn't healthy right now, every day is a chance to test and probe and examine and learn the secret of being content. So that's the first lesson. Contentment is something you learn. The second is that contentment is not dependent on circumstances. In the ancient Near East, in Paul's day, it was content. In our day, maybe it's happy. But we subscribe to this formula that says, when I get X, then I'll be happy. When I get more money, when I get a house, then I'll be content or happy. And we all know it's not true, right? And if you don't, you will. It's a myth. It's not true. 
And some of the reason for that is because the second you get to the goal, the second you finally arrive there, the goalpost moves, like a little bit further down the road. Like you can have been working for this goal for years, for decades, and you finally get to that goal and you achieve it and you live in it and it's glorious for like a day. And then your mind is now filled up with all the things that are next. Like, what, okay, what's the next thing? What now? Right? And so we do this with things in our lives. We think that just when we get to graduation and then, well, just when I get married and find that person that's going to, you know, fill that hole for me. Or what, oh, when we have kids or when we finally get to settle down and we get financial stability. And then you want to get married and you want to buy a house and you want to have kids. And then you want your kids to move out. And it just continues on and on. And the world's conception of our dreams and desires are a carrot on a stick. It's always right there. Like you can almost taste it, but it's just out of reach. And that's why Paul says, if you're not content now, no change in your circumstances will ever get you there on its own. If you're not content single, will you be content married? Married couples in the room are like, no, no. If you're not content in college, will you be content in a career? I think I'm the exception to the rule. I doubt it. If you're not content before kids, will you suddenly be content when they're up all night screaming, you haven't slept in days, and you still have to juggle all the other things that you were already doing? Why do we even think this makes any sense? You're not the exception to the rule. And the problem is that discontentment robs you of joy. Because it robs you of the ability to celebrate the goodness of God in the moment. I heard one teacher describe contentment as not a destination, but as a mode of travel. It's a way that you move through the universe. Will some moments in your life be a lot easier to be content in than others? Of course, that's a no-brainer. But as a general rule, here we find a guy imprisoned, likely going to die there. And he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. It's not dependent on your circumstances. Look at the way verse 12 reads. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul actually says here, I've learned to be content in plenty. One version says, I've learned to cope with having too much. Personally, I've not found this to be a struggle. But, but Paul says it. And before you start thinking that maybe Paul's just nuts, consider the way that money works. Is that the more that you have, the more you want. There's a famous line from John Rockefeller, who's maybe the richest man in the history of America. And he was once asked, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. And it's, it's biblical. We see there's an example in Proverbs 30. The writer of Proverbs says, Two things I ask of you, Lord. This is a prayer. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. How many of us have ever prayed a prayer like that? Give me not poverty. Sure, I like that first part. Give me not riches. God, I think I can handle riches. 
I'll use it for your glory, Lord, I promise. But seriously, to pray that prayer is a bold move. Don't, God, don't give me poverty. Don't give me riches. Give me just what I need for today. For most of us, and that sounds like a recipe for incredible anxiety. But the goal is to celebrate life as a gift. Whatever it is that you have or whatever it is that you don't have. And that contentment, Paul's teaching us, is a challenge wherever you land on that spectrum. That desire for more, that that thirst is insatiable and contentment or happiness will always be just out of reach. And I don't know about you, but I really want out of that narrative. I want out of the rat race. And Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. And the question is, how do we do it? What's his answer? What is the secret? And that's where verse 13 hits. Verse 13 says, I can do all this through him who gives me the strength. Point number three, the third lesson is the secret. And it turns out the secret has a name. Through him who gives me strength, Paul says. King Jesus. The living God found in flesh and blood as Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, I'm sure we're all aware. We've heard this before. People do some pretty weird things with this verse. I like to call Philippians 4.13 an athlete's playground. Because I played a lot of sports growing up. It was like my thing. And athletes like to do a lot of really weird things with this verse. And it's pulled out of context and it's used all over the place. We've seen it tattooed. We've seen it stitched on pillows. And it's used for a lot of different purposes. But athletes love to use it. You know, Tim Tebow used to put Philippians 4.13 on his eye black playing football. And I think it's funny because the subtext here used this way is God's strength is going to bring me this victory. Through Christ who strengthens me, I can win this football game. Apparently, Christ didn't strengthen me very much when I used to play soccer. But we also hear this verse used in a lot of other, maybe less obviously funny ways. But it's often used as this like self-motivational pump-up verse to take on all our big challenges in life. The subtext there often being kind of this magic Christ-infused superpower to allow you to achieve all your goals. I can do anything through Christ. And this isn't wrong. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, by his strength in us, he can do more than we could ever imagine. So don't hear me wrong on that. But what's interesting is Philippians 4.13, the secret is not actually referring to some magic Christ-infused superpower to empower you to achieve all your goals. The secret of Philippians 4.13 in context is actually talking about joy amidst adversity. When things are tough, when chips are down, contentment and joy amidst adversity. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This verse that we see in here absolutely everywhere to empower all the dreams and goals imaginable in context is actually talking about contentment regardless of what we achieve or fail to achieve. In context, Paul's saying, I can be content right here, right now, imprisoned, scraping by with mere survival on my to-do list. 
I can be content, at peace, happy. It is enough through him who gives me the strength. He gives me the strength. Now that phrase, through him who gives me strength, the word through is a preposition and it can mean through or in. Meaning, I can do all this. I can be content in any and all circumstances in him, in Christ, in humble, sustaining, honest intimacy with the God who knows all of our wants and our dreams and our desires and who also knows how far we feel from reaching them. He is where contentment is found because he alone is enough. I once heard philosopher James K.A. Smith say this, and it may have been borrowed, I'm not sure, but he said, discontentment comes when we place infinite value in finite things. And what that means is that the only place then that contentment can be found is in the one and only truly infinite thing. That is the one and only truly infinite being. That is the God of creation. That is Yahweh. That is in Jesus. So the desires of this world in finite things are to quote from Ecclesiastes. They're striving after wind. They're a carrot on a string. But he is enough. And he alone is enough. And the question for us this morning is, do we believe that? Do we really believe that? And like I said earlier, friends, I may have never felt more like I'm preaching a sermon specifically to myself than I do preaching this message. The grip of the world is strong. Desire is insatiable and it is hard work. It is a long process of learning to reorient our desires. But he is enough and he alone is enough. Do we believe that this morning? You can be content right here, right now. With all that you have and with all that you don't have. Not in six months, not in six years, not when you graduate, not when you get married, not when you get a house, not when you retire. Right here, right now. Because he is enough. And learning to live at his pace and reorienting our desires day by day around his kingdom vision, no matter what moment in the journey we find ourselves at, that is the secret to contentment. And here's the thing, when we look at Paul, the one who's saying this, the one who has the secret of contentment, Paul's life is radically all about Jesus. Paul's like, I'm having a great celebration. In who? In the Lord. Not a celebration in the money that you brought, Epaphroditus, or the food that you brought, or the provisions. No, because at last you renewed your concern for me. Because you lived out the gospel. Because you got on the gospel agenda. You got on the gospel worldview. I'm rejoicing in the Lord. So Paul's like, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. He's working his tail off for the sake of the gospel. He's imprisoned for it. His life is all about Jesus, all about the gospel of the kingdom of God. And if and when you and I get to that place where we are all about Jesus, all about his kingdom work, and our minds are filled not with this thing or that thing that we think that we need or want, but our minds are filled with his vision for our lives, his vision for our families, for our workplaces, for our city, for our church, all about his agenda for this world. When we get to that place, we will find that he is enough. 
And that is the secret to contentment. So I want to close with a confession. Circling back around to that kettle, because I know you're really desperate to hear more about the kettle. I got it that night after years of pining after it. And you want to know what I did the next day after getting that kettle from my young adult community. The next day, I remember I used it. I woke up in the morning. I was all excited. I used it the first time, made a coffee. And you know what I did that very day? I hopped online, and I started online shopping for a new scale. <laughs> like, no joke. I, don't even make that up. It was, it was like, great, amazing. I got this incredible gift of a beautiful new kettle for my coffee. Now, how else can I upgrade my setup? <laughs> and I share that just to say I get it. I feel like the last person to be, to be able to preach a sermon on being content in Jesus and Jesus alone. I don't have the boldness of Paul to stand up here and tell you, I found the secret and I learned to be content in all circumstances. I so regularly get caught up in what I want to see God do and what I want to see myself do and what I want for the future. Basically, all the things that I don't have. Rather than focusing on the moment, focusing on the here and now, and thanking God, having a great celebration in the Lord for what I do have. And that begins with Jesus. And this robs me, it robs each of us of joy. Joy, joy amidst adversity. Joy, whatever we have and achieve, whatever we don't have and don't achieve. I can do all that in Christ who gives me the strength. He is enough and he alone is enough. And I leave us with that question. Do we believe that this morning? Let me pray for us. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, beyond everything else, we thank you and we praise you. That we have before us, Lord, the answer to these deep longings of our heart. These longings of desire. While we may not live it out perfectly, while we may, we may not live with perfect contentment because we know the answer, Lord, we thank you that we, in knowing you, Jesus, we know the source of life to the full. We know the source and the answer to all of our heart's deepest longings and desires. And so, Lord, I just pray for us in this room today that as we go out of this place today, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, begin and continue the reorienting work of the desires and longings of our hearts. May you give us such a compelled vision of life with you and in you, Jesus, that we throw aside all these other things that we think will bring us joy and happiness and contentment. Lord, we place them in their proper place as good but not ultimate. We place them in their proper place and we strive after your vision for our lives, for our relationships, for our marriages, for our families, for our city, for our workplaces. Lord, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives, in our hearts, in our city, in our world as it is in heaven. So we just pray, come Holy Spirit. Transform us, Lord. 
Make our lives all about you, Jesus. And may we find in that that you are enough. Amen.